0: Let's have a word of prayer before we start. Father in heaven, you're such a glorious God. I thank you for that music. I thank you that our hearts are lifted up. You are a holy God. And your word is glorious and it's powerful. And I pray that now as we open it and we learn the truths that are in it, that you would change our lives. You would, you would convict us. You would change us this morning. We'd be more like Christ when we leave this place, for it's in Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you for my chair. It's good to be here. It was a little strange a few weeks ago when I preached, because I wasn't ready for just, Phil has been doing this every week. This was my first time preaching in an empty room. I remember when I got done, just took my mic off, gave it to the sound booth, walked out into an empty room, commons, past donuts that have already been eaten, the good ones by the tech team, and um, got home about 10.30 or 10.45 and, you know, my wife's like, hi, you want some oatmeal? You know, yeah, okay. It just, it'll be so good to be back with everyone and to feel your um, feedback. This is kind of a part two of a message that I preached a few weeks ago, Where Fear Meets Grace. I entitled this, Acing the Final, Joseph's Big Reveal. After I entitled that, Acing the Final Exam, and you'll see what I mean in a little while, I started to remember all the bad times. I was not good at final exams. They stressed me out ever since I can remember. Now, I was a good student, I was a good college student, and I always had to be carrying like an A+ into the finals so I could maybe take a dive and still do well. But I remember in third grade, this, this sticks in my mind, the teacher said, bring a number two pencil, the next day we're gonna have a test. So I bring a number two pencil and she gives us a booklet. I sat in the back with somebody who I was goofing around with and we were racing to see who finished. And so there were questions on one side and there were these little circles on the other side. I'll never forget this, I I thought he was going fast and I knew he was beating me, so I thought something has to give. So I skipped the questions and just went right to the filling the ovals with number two pencil. And I finished quicker, shut my book, took it up to the teacher, and she was surprised that I was done so quick, but I had won the race between he and I and um, didn't win the race because two weeks later I had a parent-teacher conference and I did not ace the final. I had to take it over because they were looking at my test and say, you're an A student and you, you tested below C on these. And I thought even as a third grader, that's still pretty good for guessing on every single question. But these guys in the story, Joseph's brothers, they ace the final exam that Joseph puts them through with the wonderful grace and help of God uh, as we'll see. But it's different for these guys. And you may be new to this series. You may be just turning this series on and don't even know who Joseph is. And you might be wondering, why is Joseph testing his brothers? I'll remind you, 22 years ago, as a, as a young boy, when he was 17 years old, his brothers, not Benjamin, but the other 10, hated him so much that they threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him, but they threw him in a pit. Then they took him out of the pit and sold them to traders going to Egypt. And then Joseph went. We've been watching his journey from the pit to the palace. And now his brothers are come back. And they have no idea who Joseph is. But he's second command governor of Egypt. And there's a famine. And they've come for grain for the second time. And Joseph is putting them in stressful situations. To see if these wayward brothers of his have really changed here's the question I have. If I were reading this story from the first time, uh, why didn't he reveal himself at the family feast yesterday as we looked at a couple weeks ago? They were having a wonderful time at the feast. It seems like they were all getting along. He could have gotten on his silver goblet and just hit it a few times. He says, may I have your attention, please? I'm your brother. Somehow it wasn't a good time. And I know why. He had to know if their repentance was real or not. Was their repentance real? 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about two kinds of repentance. A godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. It says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, there's there's a worldly sorrow It's when I'm caught red-handed and I have to suffer the consequences. And then there's a a godly sorrow when I am broken over my sin because it's offended God. I was thinking about when you're watching your grandkids and they're in a bedroom and they're jumping from bed to bed and you come in there and you say, listen, you got to get to bed. It's like 10.30. You keep jumping from bed to bed. You have to get to bed. If I come in here one more time and I see you jumping from bed to bed. I'm going to take you out, and you're going to sleep in your own bed. And then five minutes later, you come in there, and you catch one perfectly jumping from one bed to another, and you say, that's it. You have to go out and sleep in another room. You have to suffer the consequences. And they wail because they're so upset, not because they've offended God, but because they can't sleep with each other that night and they have to move into another bed that's what worldly repentance is when i was writing down here it says worldly sorrow focuses on me and how i am affected godly sorrow focuses on god and how he has been offended and if we can worry about that parents teach your children it's good to have consequences believe me but notice this in your in your kids' lives and be able to develop in their lives and this takes a lot of prayer and a lot of time that they need to recognize they're not only offending you and disobeying mom and dad but they're offending God and you need to develop that worldly or that uh, godly repentance in their lives and it takes time and make sure that you reassure them as you're as you're telling them that God is not pleased as they confessed. Reassure them with God's love and forgiveness and your love and forgiveness. But this is his final test. How much do they love my brother Benjamin? Their brother Benjamin also. And how far will they go to save their father Jacob from further grief? That's the final exam right there. We said a few weeks ago, true reconciliation Cannot come to these brothers unless they deal with their sin. Really, you can say true reconciliation doesn't come to any of us unless we deal with our sin. That's with God, or that's with my brother or sister in Christ. And that's a hundred percent of the time true. I think there's a difference between forgiveness reconciliation when it comes to my relationship with my brother or sister in Christ. You can sin against me, and I can forgive you, but there cannot be restoration until there is repentance and humility and brokenness on the one who has committed the offense, and really, humility and brokenness on the one who was offended also. And I think Joseph forgave his brothers long before they came to Egypt for grain. But I don't think it was right away. I mean, I don't think he was in the wagon going off to Egypt and yelling out, I forgive you. I don't think it was that. I think it took time for God to develop in his life principles like, Joseph, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, Bitterness is going to spring up, and you're going to start hating, and this is going to get hard. So I think it took Joseph time, but I think by the time his brothers came to Egypt 22 years later, I think he had forgiven them from the heart, and now he was waiting for restoration. I was thinking how this all plays out in our lives this week. You're either in Joseph's shoes, or you're in the brother's shoes. This is what I mean by that. You've you've either been greatly offended and you're trying to deal with that or you've greatly offended someone and maybe you're trying to ignore that. You say, well, no, I don't have a problem with anybody. Well, then you live in a bubble because if you're out with any relationships at all, you're going to run into this. You're going to run into friction and trouble. And our outline's pretty simple. And all the drama... And the emotion of this passage. I want you to remember something. And believe me, there is no social distancing at the end of this passage. When Joseph reveals, I am Joseph, everybody is hugging. Everybody is crying. Everybody is kissing. But I want you to remember the fact. Don't miss this. I even think Pastor Phil touched on this last week. Repentance towards God and humility towards others. I think Pastor Phil said, will put you on the path of joy and victory, and it'll also help you tremendously in reconciliation with others. Repentance towards God and humility towards others. You say, well, that's okay. I'm not really concerned about reconciliation with others. I just want forgiveness from God. That's, that's good. Think about, think about that for a moment. Go in a room and say that. I'm really not concerned about reconciliation with others. I'm just concerned about forgiveness from God. The two absolutely must go together. It would be like me saying, I've taken Jesus Christ as my savior, but I'll get back to you on that, whether he's my Lord or not, right? You don't do that. When you accept Jesus Christ, he is the Lord Jesus Christ and when you truly repent then your heart is broken over what you've done and you're willing this is important you're willing to do whatever it takes to make it right and you're about to see that in the lives of Joseph's brothers the final examination chapter 44 verse 1 I called this the setup and I can't imagine how excited these brothers are and relieved as they are leaving that morning for that 250 Mile, 10-day trip up northeast. Instead of prison, they were being honored at the palace, and they've got Simeon back. They've got enough grain for months. And the most important thing is on that wagon next to them, their father's going to be so pleased because they have Benjamin right next to them. They didn't lose him. Jacob's favorite child. Look at verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill them in sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. Something about verse 1 and verse 2 seem strange. I know it's the word of God, but... It seems, they don't seem to fit together. Verse one's good. They fill their sacks to the top. I mean, he fills them full. But the second verse, he put my silver cup in Benjamin's sack? I'm thinking, why would he say that? They were having such a great time at the dinner yesterday at noon. Do you remember? They were bringing food from Joseph's table and he was piling it on Benjamin. Why is he setting him up here? And one writer said this, and I wrote it down. Even though Joseph was the man responsible for this next test, it can be better regarded as the final examination that God himself was placing on them. Were they truly fit to, come, to become the ancestors of his chosen people, the ones that one day would produce the prophets, the scriptures, and the Messiah through the line of Judah that would bring salvation to the whole world. you got to remember something. This is more than just a family squabble. The salvation of the entire world is at stake right here. The 12 tribes of, Isla- the 12 tribes of Israel, especially Judah, the line of Judah which would produce Jesus Christ. This all was at stake right here. And it seems like they proved they're genuine. Didn't they prove that they were genuine? They watched Benjamin getting that food and it says they drank and were merry, which means they were enjoying themselves. But here's a question. They could easily have masked their feelings at that banquet table. But what would they do if Benjamin's life was at stake? What would they do if their life was at stake would it be Benjamin or their life? Now, he knows what they did 22 years ago when it was his life and they had no care for it. But he's hoping that they've changed. And we'll see if they did. Look at the shakedown in verse three. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid, good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. Now the steward, we all like the steward. He's fine, he's gracious, he's hospitable. He's reassuring so far up to this point, and now he's apprehending them, and he's accusing them of a very serious offense, They've taken the silver cup of Joseph's, or as the, of the governor of Egypt. I was gonna ask Phil to go in his prop closet and get me a silver cup, but I forgot to, so it's right here. Um, but I want you to remember something. Don't get hung up on that Joseph was using a divination cup and saying, well, is he satanic? I think this is all part of the disguise of being the governor. Of Egypt, If Joseph hasn't proven to me that he's a man that loves God up to this point, he never will. So this was all part of the plan of Joseph to convince these guys who he is. And look how they push back. The pushback in verse 6. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to them, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants has found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. This is the first time, and it's refreshing. It really is refreshing to see these men defend themselves, to stand up for themselves. To say, seriously, if we were thieves, why would we bring back the money that you put in our sacks from the first trip, right? Well, the steward continues with a plan and he says, we'll only keep one. We'll only keep one. And this is where it gets very stressful, the breakdown. Very well then, he said in verse 10, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave, and the rest of you will be free from blame. And so each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. And then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes, And then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Notice they set their bags down quickly. I think this is just to show we're in a hurry. We're innocent. Let's get this over with. Just search our bags because we're sure we're honest men. Remember they told Joseph that in like chapter 42. We're honest men. And then comes verse 12. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Do something for me. Will you take a step back for a minute and maybe pretend that you're in their shoes? Because you know, you know what's going to happen. You know in a few verses the confetti comes out. Will you just for one minute consider the terror that these guys are feeling that they may lose their brother? Benjamin. I have a note here. The one person they absolutely did not want to lose was Benjamin. You know, when you're watching your grandkids by the ocean or by a pool or when you were watching your small children, you're constantly worried about them. Where's so-and-so? Where's so-and-so? I think on this trip, they were constantly constantly saying, where's Benjamin? Anyone? Do you know where Benjamin is? Benjamin, okay, just making sure you're here because we don't want to lose you. We don't want to lose you because we lose Benjamin, our dad dies, all right? Lose Benjamin, lose Jacob, lose our dad. Well, Kent Hughes says this, I love this. In a horrifying moment, the steward lifts the gleaming object out of the grain and held the silver cup triumphantly as he flashed it in the morning sun and they tore their clothes. That was a sign of incredible sorrow and deep repentance. And sometimes in scripture, it says they took dirt and threw it up. They didn't do it here, but they probably did do it here. And there's great wailing. This this was no show. These brothers were devastated that they may lose Benjamin. And they were not the same men. They were not the same heartless men who the Bible says they ate a meal outside the pit while Joseph screamed for his life. Something wonderful was taking place. I have a note here. They were turning to God, and he was changing them. And he was changing them. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know that well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And now we see this beautiful transformation in verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers come in. And they threw themselves to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who is found to have the cup. The brothers here are actually taking the blame. They're actually standing before Joseph and say, we're to blame. This is the third time that they have hit the deck, in a sense. They'll do it again, chapter fifty. The first two times, it was kind of out of honor and out of respect. This time, when they hit the ground, it's out of complete devastation, desperation, brokenness. I'm not sure what this would look like. They weren't that far from Egypt. They may have gone a few miles when the steward apprehended them. But as they came back, I can imagine what that scene was. Clothes are torn. Dirt all over, sad, probably mud on their face because the tears that they were weeping was mixed with the dust that they were throwing. Joseph began to see the sorrow as these men slouched and came in the palace. I have a note here. The world would say, what a sorry bunch of guys. And then I thought to myself, but God and Joseph would say, and we would say, what an absolute beautiful sight. A heart repenting, a heart turning, a heart weeping for his sin. You know, I have had my hand on the back of a few men in my life that have wailed because of the decisions they have made, and they're repenting of their lives. And although that's a sad moment as you hear this deep wail of somebody who has made tremendous mistakes and hurt so many people, there's a joy that springs up because you know change is coming. You know forgiveness is coming. You know joy is coming. And that's a wonderful moment when a heart turns to God because God changes them. And instead of leaving their brother to fend for themselves, they all offer themselves as slaves. And I had a note here, repentance is a change of heart that always results in a change of action. Repentance is a change of heart that always results in a change of actions. I'm not saying perfection, but when you truly repent before God, there must be a change of direction. In your life, if God's truly in it. And look what repentance says, what God is doing, an incredible work in your life. Verse 16 Judas says, What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servants killed. This is not about the silver cup, this is about the sin of selling their brother that they have been hiding for 22 years. It was the elephant in every room. It was the nightmare that they would go to bed. It was the story that would be on their mind in the morning. It was the dagger in their heart that they could not run away with, run away from. But when God uncovers the guilt of our hearts, we have one of two choices. We can run, I've tried it, you've tried it, but that never works because God's faster than us. Because it says, your sin, be sure, your sin will find you out. I could run as fast as I want from God, but he's always at the end of my sin saying, are you ready to turn to me yet? Or we repent, and that always works. Because God promised to forgive those who come to him and confess their sins. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look what Joseph says in verse 17. But Joseph says, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who has, was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go back to your fathers in peace. Joseph gives them a thanks, but no thanks response. Go in peace. (laughs) That is the exact opposite of what these guys would be feeling if they were to leave without Benjamin. Every time these guys leave home, they bring back one less brother. (laughs) <laughs> you, ever, you ever think about that? They didn't want to bring back one less brother here. And so Judah steps up. And he takes the stage in one of the most incredible, beautiful, glorious passages in the entire word of God. I call it Judah takes the hit. And he gives this respectful explanation in verses 18 to 29. It's just a review, and I'm not going to read it all because I want to read the the climax at the end. But this is basically an explanation, and he does it very respectfully, and he says, listen, when we came here the first time, you asked us about our family, and we told you that we had a father who had a son in his old age, and he had another son that was killed by a wild animal And when you asked us to bring our youngest brother to Egypt, our father said, If you take him to Egypt and anything happens to him, I will die. Notice this was the first time that Joseph probably heard the explanation that they gave to how he disappeared. I don't think he knew that they told him that he was mauled by a wild animal. And then Judah offers his own life. He offers his own life, and I have his humble substitution. Verse 30, now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Isn't this amazing how Judah has changed? Do you remember Judah? The guy that in chapter 37 says, well, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. We don't want to be guilty of his blood. And now Judah says, in a sense, my father and my brother are joined at the heart. And if something happens to Benjamin, my father will surely die. And I cannot let that happen and I will not let that happen. What he's saying in short was my life for his life. I think about scripture there's not many people who have said that my life for their life. Moses did it when he interceded for the sinful Israelites. Do you remember that? And He told God, blot me out of the book that you've written. Esther did it when she stood up for her Jewish nation and she said, if I perish, I perish. Paul did it, Romans 9, when he loved his Jewish brothers so much, he said, I wish myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. And now Judah says my life for his life. All four of these people had one thing in common. They never really had to give their life. They offered it, but they didn't have to. There was only one in Scripture, in the line of Judah, 1,800 years later, who would say, my life for their life. And he carried it through to its painful and glorious conclusion. Jesus Christ The Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away the sins of the world. Why did I say painful and glorious conclusion? He carried it out to his painful conclusion because he bore our sins on the cross. The glorious conclusion because he rose again from the dead three days later. Jesus Christ, it's the most wonderful doctrine in the scripture. It's the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He took our place. I heard a preacher once say, that's why when it says Judah takes the hit, I heard a preacher once say, the greatest definition of sacrificial love is this. If someone is gonna take the hit, let it be me. If somebody's gonna take the hit, let it be me. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. We were gonna take a heavy hit for our sin. But Jesus Christ came and took the full weight of God's wrath. So we didn't have to. I love this next verse. I use it in a lot of my sermons. Somebody asked me once, how do you memorize so much scripture for the sermons? I said, listen, I just use the same verses in each sermon. Um, so, and then they said, really? I go, no, not really. 1 Peter 2.24, listen to this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love this. For God made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God In him, he took our place. You know when Pastor Phil does communion, he has the cup and he has the bread and he repeats that passage in Matthew where Jesus said, this is my body which was given up for you instead of you. This is my blood which was shed for you. Instead of you, I shed my blood for you. Well, we get to the point after he gets done with this, and I had so many fancy little points for this section, I did. I put, they were alliterated and nice, and I threw them all out, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'm just gonna read you this reconciliation and let you see the power of the word of God. One writer said, it's scarcely possible to comment on this passage without robbing it of its own charm And power. So I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm going to read. I know it doesn't seem possible. Shut my mouth, but read. I'm not going to comment. I'm going to read these passages and let you see this reconciliation. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, 'Everyone, everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were so terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all that you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household will all become destitute. You can see for yourselves and you can see my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed his brothers and he wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. It's amazing. I always think to myself, no further questions, Your Honor. You got your answer, Joseph. Have my wayward brothers really changed? Yes. This is the moment that he had been waiting for. You remember what I said a few weeks ago? He was waiting for full restoration. And that was repentance towards God that would result in changed lives that would bring healing to the entire family. And I say in this scene, let the healing begin. One commentator, I think it was James Montgomery Boyce, he entitled this chapter in his commentary, God, 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 to stress the fact that Joseph was so obsessed With seeing God's hand in his everyday life. Every circumstance, one man says, to see God in all these things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive easily those who injure us deeply. You say, even in the evil? I mean, can we see God's hand in the evil? Are you sure? You remember what he says in chapter 50, verse 20, when he looked at the brothers and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. One author said, God doesn't do the evil. He doesn't condone the evil. He's not in the evil, but he uses it for his own purposes and for our ultimate good. And you say, can you explain that a little further? Absolutely not. I can't climb in the mind of God and understand that. All I know is even the evil that men do to us, God turns around. It's the boomerang effect, and he turns it around for his glory. And the cross is the most beautiful picture of that. Satan wanted to destroy Christ on the cross, and God raised him from dead, and he brings salvation to all. will believe. This is how I have to view my circumstances, that God uses all things. If I don't, I'm going to think that this life is just this big tug of war between God and Satan, and there's that red flag in the middle, and sometimes God is winning, and he's pulling that flag his way, and sometimes Satan is winning and pulling that flag his way, and God is shouting out all our lives, pull harder! That's not what life is. That's not what God does. God's never losing. God's never behind. God's not losing with five seconds left and he's gonna shoot a three-pointer in Revelation and we're gonna score. God is always in control. He's always winning. Even though sometimes in this world it seems like the darkness is winning. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, Every knee shall bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 15 again. And he kissed all his brothers, and he wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talk with him. What a great scene. I can't imagine how much catching up they had to do. All those years, um, I had to think to myself, this doesn't, this has a hallmark ending. I mean, you can hear the music playing. You can see them hugging. But I know what you're thinking. And I put down here, only a person who's had their heart changed by God could do what Joseph has done at the end and show the love and the kindness and the humility and the forgiveness that he shows his brother. But they don't all have hallmark endings with a spouse or an ex-spouse or an adult child or an in-law or a parent or a friend or a relative, you may never see repentance or reconciliation in the lives of those who have hurt you, but you have no control over that. But you know what you do have control over? Your own heart, your own actions, your own attitudes. Romans 12 18 still applies in our lives and it says if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men you're not a Christian this morning and you just turn this on and you think and you're, you're listening to it and you're like you mean Christ went to the cross to take my sins away what do I do now? How do I how do I get salvation? You come to the cross. You confess your sins. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible says you are saved. It's called repentance unto salvation. You turn to God. Guess what? He's never turned away someone that has come in repentance and asked for forgiveness. He that comes to me, I will in no way turn away maybe you've been you're a Christian and you are totally devastated by the hurt from someone in your life and you've tried so hard for reconciliation but it's just not there and you're wondering what do I do let me give you this encouragement as we close I even put these on the church notes so you could just have this. Don't give up. Don't get bitter. Pray. Live a life of humility and kindness. Look for opportunities to love them when they become available. And then you trust God and you leave it right in his hands. Just like Joseph hope that's an encouragement to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I realize that there are people that have maybe turned this on for the first time and they're watching and they heard the message of salvation and they sense that God is calling them to salvation. Will you please make it clear to them? Will you please help them to turn from their sin and turn to God? And this morning, June 28th, This would be the day that they become a new creature in Christ. And I pray for those who have been hurt by evil in their lives, by evil men, by people, and they're having a hard time dealing with it. God, let this series, and especially this morning, be such an encouragement to their heart. And God, don't let them give up. Don't let them be bitter. Let them live a life of humility and kindness and to love that person and then to watch what you can do as they do their part. Let them stand back and see the wonderful power of reconciliation from a great God like you. For it's in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining our worship service online today. Our prayer is that the worship and teaching will inspire you to love God, love others, and influence the world for Jesus Christ. If you made a spiritual decision today, we'd love to know about it. You can click on the link for our online connection card. If you haven't yet, you can download our church app and you can see more opportunities and messages and even share this message with a friend. And go to our website, fbclcart.org, for even more opportunities. We hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at FBC Elkhart.